Welcome to episode 80, Psychotherapy's Fatal Flaw and How to Fix It, featuring Dr. Scott Miller and Dr. Daryl Chow by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Dr. Scott Miller and Dr. Daryl Chow. Um, we're going to be talking about the outcomes in psychotherapy. And uh, let me start by introducing both Dr. Miller and Dr. Chow. Dr. Scott Miller is a, is a licensed clinical psychologist out of Chicago, and he is also the director of the International Center for Clinical Excellence. And he's joined by Dr. Daryl Chow, who is a psychologist joining us from Australia. And he is uh, a certified trainer and senior associate for the International Center for Clinical Excellence, and he also is a psychologist in group practice. Uh, hello to you both. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, so, Scott, Scott, why don't we start? Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and how you came to do this very unique uh, kind of work in psychotherapy research? I feel like I have a uh, a very privileged position in our field. I've been able to pursue what has interested me from the time I was a graduate student, and that was how could I be effective in my work? And much of what I learned in graduate school, I just didn't understand, and I had a really hard time applying. I felt like the the, the slow person in, in, the, in terms of understanding an uptake in, in the classroom. And it's so the course of my career has really been about pursuing what it takes to to be effective and to be more effective than I was the day before. And uh, during that time, I've traveled and met wonderful researchers and colleagues and friends like my Daryl Chow, uh, who's the co-author of uh, the most recent book we've done, uh, Better Results, that will be out from APA in May. Um, thank you. And Daryl, how about you? How did you come to do this kind of work with the ICCE? Yeah, I think for me, it, it's, uh, I think the year is 2004. And I'm walking in a library. And I'm just scouting around, you know, looking for stuff that might be interesting. And I stumbled across uh, books that, that Scott Miller and his co-authors and, and our other co-author, Mark Cobble, wrote. And I think that was when it all began. I was a really big fan. And I was at that time in Queensland in, in, in Australia. And by some sheer coincidence, our lecturer for the counseling unit, he was talking about the common factors. And I'm thinking, this is really interesting. And flash forward just a couple of years going into the master's and working in, in a clinical setting in Singapore, where it's my home country. Everybody was talking about model-specific type of treatment, which was so different from what I've uh, seen and read from Scott and, and other colleagues' work. And, and that's, that's where it all began. And I think as it went on, I started to um, write to authors and, you know, wanting to see if I could talk with them and hear their ideas out. Um, not many reply, and, and Scott was one of them who replied. <laughs> <laughs> and... I need friends. So, so did I. And, and, 
and you know i think that where the conversation took on a life of its own and that you know we went on to pursue uh, research in this area and then we we took it a little bit further with trainings that we do annually in chicago and then now this book which has been uh seeded many many years prior i think the fact that you've together written a book on the topic speaks to just how much there is to discuss you know that we only have an hour today to be talking about this topic but that it's something that is not that common in conversation um daryl to piggyback piggyback on what you said definitely we're in a, in a space that's dominated by evidence-based practices or empirically based practices and um, i want to invite you scott why don't you start by telling us um, a little bit about the outcomes of psychotherapy and what propelled you to even just release this book because clearly it was something you felt needed to be said so uh, part of this journey is very personal and the other part is is quite academic on a personal level. As I said, I always felt like I was behind in graduate school. Uh, my fellow students seemed to know exactly what to do when the professor spoke, it made perfect sense to them. I had a hard time translating what seemed to me very esoteric, vague theories into something practical, especially when the person opposite me was, was really suffering. And so the pursuit began to try to find somebody who would help me first explain to me what to do in the room for an entire hour with somebody and then secondly to ensure that what we did in the room together was actually helpful and effective i ended up personally going to milwaukee and working with two very well-known clinicians steve DeShazer and Inzu berg i learned their way of working very well i think i contributed some to the development of the approach wrote a couple of books at the time with Inzu berg but then researchers came and we found out that everything we believed about our work, that we were more effective, that we did it more briefly, simply wasn't true. We were about as effective as everyone else. So while my confidence had increased and while I knew what to do in the room, my effectiveness hadn't changed whatsoever over the course of my career. And that just wasn't satisfactory to me. I could tell that 25 to 30 percent of the people that i worked with uh, just by estimation weren't benefiting from the conversations that that we had and what did that mean i was supposed to do there are sort of two choices one choice is to learn the latest and greatest a new treatment model and our field dishes up a new model literally monthly uh, you'll hear about new changes or tweaks to existing models. And I'd been down that route before. We tweaked solution-focused therapy, and, and all of those tweaks were really rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. The boat was sinking, and we really weren't achieving any better outcomes. So that's the, that's the personal drive. On the academic side, for decades, we've known that psychotherapy works. The first meta-analysis in the history of healthcare was done by two psychologists, Mary Smith and Eugene Glass, in 1966-1967, and the outcomes were really quite good. But what our field has done in terms of pursuing better results is to train therapists in what you called evidence-based treatments or empirically supported treatments. And I'll just say, and I, I don't want to monopolize here, that there is no such thing as an evidence-based treatment. There is no such thing. This is very slippery slope. APA, the World Health Organization, all organizations have a definition of evidence-based practice. 
which is a verb, not a noun. So it's not about doing EMDR with traumatized clients. Evidence-based practice is taking the best available research with clinical expertise in the context of client preferences, values, cultures, and worldview. So you're having to fit what you know how to do to the individual client. That's evidence-based practice. But what's offered, as I said already, is so many more different treatment techniques. And the promise being that if you just master this new one, then you'll get better. For me, personally and academically, that's been a, a, a dead end, a cheeseless tunnel, so to speak. I remember from our previous conversation when you said um, people they go and they get these trainings for evidence-based practices, whatever the, the acronym is, and that it has pretty much as much likelihood of making them get better as it does of also making them get worse. And if we don't know the actual research yeah. and even the individual outcomes for them, it's kind of, as you said, a slippery slope to not know. Um, how about for you, Daryl, what's your reaction uh, to the research about the outcomes of psychotherapy? And maybe you can speak a little bit. Um, what are the actual average success rates, I should say, about psychotherapy at this point? So I think the, the, the research definitely is hopeful when we compare the effectiveness of psychotherapy to other kinds of medical treatments. But the thing is, we, if we're talking on averages, it's, it's very hard for individual practitioners to know if what they're doing, one client at a time, one therapist at a time, how they are not only adjusting and adapting, but providing benefit to each person. So on an on a average level, we can talk about that uh, and what the research says. But I think on an individual level, it's, it's so critical that therapists figure out a way to tweak, adjust, recalibrate, take the feedback and feed forward to with what they're doing with one client at a time. And I think echoing what Scott was saying about evidence-based practice, the meeting of client preferences based on the available research we have, and also coming, uh, bringing in our voice and our expertise into the treatment requires a sensibility that's not just outsource into, oh, this is an evidence-based treatment, therefore this should work for this type of person. So I think, you know, the temptation is to, to think about this on, on that higher level, you know, when, we, when it comes to um, uh, the evidence. But I think the critical thing is what's each therapist's evidence. Thank you. I appreciate you taking it kind of personal. What, what are the actual numbers about the effectiveness of psychotherapy? If, if you're looking at the, it, 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 there's, Daryl really highlights, I think, the central dilemma in much of this research, and that is we, we're looking at randomized controlled trials and reports of averages. So if you look over the history of randomized controlled trials and you take the most tested method, CBT, then the recovery rate is about 50-50. And when you say recovery rate, that means for what amount of time? Well, it, generally, these randomized controlled trials are no longer than 12 weeks. So within 12 weeks, about 50% of the clients are, are meet recover, recovered status. And as Daryl said, that, that's, that's very good news in general. The problem is, if, what happens if you're part of the other 50%? And then, then, then it's not it's not it's not happy news at all. Secondly, we have a fair bit of evidence now that clinicians aren't particularly good, despite what they believe, at detecting when their cases are at risk for dropout or treatment failure. So we have sort of a one-two punch here 
that number one, it's a 50-50 shot, flip a coin. Uh, and secondly, if, if it ends up tails and you lose, we may not be able to see it, we may not know it. When you talk about 50-50, I know at least for me, it it is a kind of a, a kick in the gut because I'm just imagining, you know, these clients coming in, they're so vulnerable. They're telling us some things that they may have never even verbalized for anyone. And to be able to look them in the eye and be like, well, according to the researchers, about a 50-50 chance you're going to improve from whatever it is that I'm doing in the room right now. Um, that's a really eerie concept. Mm -hmm. And I think the work that you all are doing to have this conversation, I think it puts targets on your head <laughs> uh, because it's it's really scary. And even thinking about what you said in the the previous practice that you had done, Scott, and recognizing at some point, finally acknowledging, oh my gosh, this isn't actually better than these other methods. That must have been just a devastating blow in and of itself. Well, the, the team the team in Milwaukee didn't survive the research. Uh, it, it, event, it, it split. But I have to say, I, I find, and I know Daryl does as well, th this fact stimulating. Because if we embrace our failures, there's an opportunity of learning. If we just continue to do more of the same, shifting these deck chairs around constantly, whether it's tapping or finger waving or empathy even, then we're, we're not gonna get anywhere. So there is cause for celebration. Sometimes I think it's, it's easy to become discouraged. But the real gold in all of this is where we get up against our edge, where, where our performance edge, where our work is, is less reliable and helpful than it was before. Then there's a possibility of something new and different and exciting. I definitely agree. And that's why I've been trained by the ICCE. However, um, I think it's it requires us to think differently about our work. It requires us to be accountable in a different way. Um, for you, Daryl, how do you see this research as being hopeful for clinicians? I, I think it's hopeful for me personally that there, there is something I can think about for for me for my setting the context that i'm in and how i can get better because you know you think about this right so first up i must confess you know for the longest time in my whole professional career i'm uh i'm one of those guys that go to every single workshop that's available that i can afford i would you know make sure that i try my very best to go to 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 them and and if not, you know, I, I would be a hoarder of therapy-related videos, and I would watch them uh, and study them as much as I can, and even you know approach models that I don't have a preference for. But here's the thing: the common thing that you you see from workshops is they teach you the the how, right, uh, to do therapy, and and they would promote a certain way, a certain methodology, a certain metaphor of thinking, but we never stop to think about where are you at? We never stop to think about where you at, what's your baseline, what's what's your, your style of working. And from that prior knowledge, building that even further, because most of that is, is an assumption in, in a lot of workshops. They just jumped to the how before they get to the what is your individual growth edge. Because my growth edge, it's, it's going to be very different from, from yours, Beth, or even from Scott's. And I think for us to figure out where we're at, it's such an underappreciated thing that we just go, oh yeah, you know, this is 
this is going to be good if we just add on and add on and learn more about this and not forgetting, you know, the, the stuff that we have to begin with that we, we would require us to move towards that particular edge because that edge is going to change once we reach that frontier of ours and it's going to evolve again as we go further. So really it's taking the averages and in some ways scrapping them and simply looking, I guess, in the mirror on a proverbial level, looking at your own personal outcomes. And it's it's interesting, Daryl, there was a method that I was trained in years ago in Los Angeles that was extremely complicated. It was, it was um, required by a grant that was offered for a county-based facility that I was working mm -hmm. with. And it, it was basically the infusion of a ton of different EBPs. And it made care feel... Um, paralyzingly difficult mm -hmm. because everything, basically every move you made clinically, you had to go back to the computer, kind of look in this manual and then look at the clients presenting symptoms and how you were supposed to respond. And it was so complicated. And I remember saying, okay, I've agreed that I'm going to do this. Um, but this doesn't even feel like me. Like, it's right. just like you were saying, it's like this, this doesn't feel right. I don't, I, this, I, this, this doesn't work, but it was, I was torn because I had this county-based expectation that said, you need to be using this EBP based on EBPs or else, you know, then we're not delivering effective care. So, I mean, that personally, I think a lot of us can relate mm -hmm. with that struggle. Like what happens when we learn a method or we're required to use a method and it doesn't actually jive with how we see psychotherapy and how we see the process or who we are as individual clinicians. Um, so going back to kind of the ethos of this, Scott, when you say rearranging the deck chairs, it sounds like you're saying the outcomes haven't improved because we basically continue to treat the symptoms instead of actually looking at the condition that's caused the outcomes of psychotherapy to stagnate. Well, I, I think that is the most damning finding. So in the latest issue, uh, or maybe it's the prior issue of the American psychologist, two Uber researchers who I followed for a very long time and have a great deal of respect for James Prochaska and, uh, of stages of change fame, and then John Norcross, who is just an unbelievably solid researcher, um, a scary mind uh, in terms of his grasp of, of the data. They admit something that I pointed out at the 2014 Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, which was, if you look at the outcomes of psychotherapy, they, they haven't improved. So clearly what we're doing is shuffling our feet or rearranging the chairs. We're, 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 not, moving, we're, we're not moving forward. And coming back to something you said, Elizabeth, that I think is so re remarkable, our field sifts for smart people. To get into graduate school, it's quite, a, it's quite an accomplishment. It's quite an accomplishment. Curiously enough, then, our theories have to match our brilliance and our abilities. When really what the expertise literature says, and this is where both Daryl and I began to connect, reading not just in our field, what leads people to be experts, but across a variety of human endeavors, computer programming, teaching, surgery, et cetera, that top performers, that is those with the best outcomes, work and rework the fundamentals. They're not always looking for the most complicated technical intervention or the advanced technique. They're reworking the fundamentals. I, I hesitate to call them basics because then people just uh, are, are aghast by that. But that's really what it is. So 
our work, I think, and something Daryl, I think, should talk about uh, his, his difficult conversations and therapy project isn't about teaching therapists these highly complicated technical models, but helping them develop basic core skills like empathic responding. And we find that therapists have holes in their abilities. They are empathic with children, but not adults or with an adult who's depressed and traumatized, but not somebody who's pissed off at us. You know, then suddenly you see this dip. Well, why practice empathy in general? What you have to practice is empathic responding where your particular pattern of deficits uh, uh, lies. So I, I think what, one way I think about this, you know, just go, uh, going from what Scott is saying, I think about this in terms of the world of music. It's much easier to improve at an instrument be it a guitar, piano, or violin, than to become good at songwriting. Because songwriting is so nebulous, it's a wicked environment. I mean, it, it depends on when you're writing this, to whom, to what culture you're speaking to, and does this connect with the audience that you're trying to reach, right? And for, to improve at, let's say, the guitar, it's so much easier because it's technically spelled out. It's, it's, a, it's a more kind environment, as we would call it. So you learn the scales, you learn the fingering, you learn the chords. You can get better and better and better and better at that. But getting good at your instrument does not mean that you're going to become a better songwriter because you can sound, uh, uh, you can sound horrible even, like maybe like, Bob Dylan, right? He's not, he doesn't have the best voice of all, but he's known to be one of the greatest songwriters of all time. And I think our field has sort of looked at an area that doesn't have high yield in terms of impacting outcomes is just zone in on the technical aspects of therapy and forget the larger encompassing thing that Scott was alluding to about this project we did for the difficult conversations in therapy, which is about engagement, right? About able to ignite, uh, to have an impact and connect and to have something of a life-giving force within uh, the conversation. That analogy, certainly when I think of talent, um, and even in watching America's Got Talent, it's the folks that are able to work within some kind of frame, but have creativity and flexibility within it that to me is a real mark of talent. And it sounds like that's what you found in the research, even with psychotherapy. It's the people that are able to move kind of flexibly within the space, see where they have, ironically, see where they have a blind spot and then try to address that blind spot or that edge by leaning into it instead of backing away from it and kind of staying where we're comfortable, which would be, I'm going to learn a new method and that's going to check some box and make me better. Yeah, and I, I, th that edge, if we want to sort of push the envelope a bit here, when you look at the data, we can't find much difference between five-year post-PhD trained psychologists and their students, for example, in terms of outcome. And in fact, in many studies, the students do better. We, when we tracked clinicians in the largest study to date in history, looking at the impact of experience on outcome, because therapists say the number one way they learn how to do therapy is by listening to clients. I think that's very important. The problem is when you look at their data, actually over time, they don't get better. They get slightly worse with time and experience. And then third, you, you compound all of this by asking therapists, well, just how effective are you? really. 
And on average, they overestimate their effectiveness by 65% or so. So you have all of these factors combined. Uh, then the field teaches us, well, the way to get better is by mastering this particular model. And you have a recipe really for psychotherapy's fatal flaw that we just don't work in a way that's going to lead to better outcomes from our client. It has nothing to do with will. It has nothing to do with intention. We therapists spend massive amounts of money attending education. They get, they, they spend money on supervision. Nowadays in most States, you have to have between two and 3000 hours of, of, of supervised work in order to sit for the licensing exam. That's, that's a considerable investment shouldn't it lead to better outcomes? Mm -hmm. So you lead to my next question. What do we do about better outcomes and how do we create better results? So I, I think, I mean, there's a framework to think about this, which we spell out in the book. But when we talk about deliberate practice in this book of better results, I, you know, we are speaking of it less of a noun than and more of a verb of something that people get activated and involved in doing ongoingly, not something that you do with high intensity as a one-off, it's something that you want to bake into your routine, right? And the framework that we, we offer, it's not something that we made up, it's something that we have pondered, looked at the research, as Scott mentioned, from outside our field. We come back again, we look at what we found in deliberate practice research that we've done, which is, by the way, at really uh, early stage. We're really at an infancy of this but the four key tenets that, that we, we see are, the first is to have an individualized learning objective, to have a clear direction of where, what Scott and I have been saying so far, and you, you clearly have picked that up very, very pronounced in, in a fashion about our individualized learning objective. We need to figure out what that edge is. We need to figure out that. The second piece as well is to have feedback feedback in terms of one client at a time, but also feedback about how we are working towards what we're trying to improve based on the learning objective. Number three is to have successive refinement. You know, when you're working on something, you don't just want to work on it and push it away and work on the next thing. You want to continually to move inch by inch, uh, moving the needle bit by bit, you know, in the direction that you want to go. And the, the fourth and final piece in this um, little pyramid is, is really a, a, what we call a coach, right? Or in our pedagogy and in, in our field, we call this a clinical supervisor. But here's the thing, this clinical supervisor or coach piece is central to the deliberate practice uh, framework. So far, what we know uh, from the study of the impact of clinical supervision, it contributes something like zero to 1% of client outcome. If you think about this as, as what we've been saying so far, therapists value development. We all value growth, right? But the thing is, we don't have any hard evidence of where we're at. And deeper down, we, we are sort of whiplash between uh, uh, overestimating ourselves and underestimating ourselves because we're plagued with this doubt. Am I any good? Am I doing it right? Is this what therapy should look like? Am I effective, right? And, and I think this back and forth creates a, a, a sort of a dilemma of, of, of 
what we can do. But which is why I think we need to reimagine this role uh, of the supervisor. The supervisor needs to have clarity about where the individual stands and helping the practitioner carve out uh, uh, what is their growth edge. So with that four in mind, that four pillars, the individualized learning objective, feedback, successive refinement, and the role of a, a coach to guide them, I think there's also three uh, steps ahead on the journey. And, and the first step really, as we have alluded to, is to figure out your baseline performance, to figure out how effective you are with the people that you're working with. And to also figure out not just that, but to figure out your way of working, your, the way that you approach therapy, your, your voice, your style in, in the way that you approach this endeavor. And second is also to figure out the how before, uh, the, the what before the how, to figure out what you need to work on that actually has leverage. Now, Scott can speak to this as well, because both our experience working with people, when they pick up, when they pick out the what to work on, often the stuff that they pick out has got little leverage on improving their outcomes. So for instance, when we ask supervisees or therapists to say, okay, let's identify what are some areas given what your baseline says about your performance, what to work on, you hear things like, I want to improve my two-chair ch technique for working with a critical self, or I want to improve uh, um, uh, the, the way I do the, the uh, reprocessing protocol for, for trauma-informed work, which has got, yes, it has impact, but much smaller impact than the other domains of engagement in, in human interaction or the conversational nature of therapy. So that's one, which is why the coach role is, is so critical. And then finally, it's also to develop a, a learning system, a way that can help them continually improve, continually think about the practice as something that they can work on and they can continually learn as opposed to continually perform because they need some kind of system to guide them by having what they're doing in clinical practice translate into a way that's reflective and actually having a high yield impacting the outcome. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It, I, I like how you discuss even leverage, um, which is in and of itself such a simple concept, but I've never thought about it the way that you're using it and introducing it. Um, and I think the difficulty I can hear for clinicians, like how, how to even find this, you know, when you're, you're in a world that has all of these evidence-based practices that pretty much say, do this and you're going to be better. I mean, that's the bottom line of what all of those um, mailers in my in my mailbox say, you know, learn this method and you will be more effective. That's right. What you're talking about is so different than what most clinicians know. And um, I'd like to invite either of you to speak. So tell me more about the research behind kind of the importance of the relationship and that conversation. Because you're you're saying basically these variables that we think are really impactful, like supervision or evidence-based practices, really account for very very little of this. And I know from the research, it's predominantly based in in the relationship. Talk to us more about that, and then how you use that as a tool in the process of coaching your supervision to actually make a difference to support clinicians in becoming more effective. 
So there, there are a couple of things. And, but first I want to say, I, I agree with you, Elizabeth, when you say that all the brochures and flyers that you get in the mail or in the email or whatever, say, do this and you'll be effective. But I think that's what they say. But the promise really is, do this and you won't be held accountable for when you're not effective. That, that's, that's what I think these things promise, right? Because at the end, if it doesn't work, what do you say? Well, it wasn't me. It must have been the client or wrong diagnosis. Those are the only two things that are left. And I have to tell you, that is unsatisfying to me as a practitioner. And it should be to, to everyone. I, I care about the people I work with. It's why I'm in this profession. Uh, I want to be better at helping people. And if I'm understanding what your question is about, what we have to do is establish just how effective you are and more particularly when you're not, because that's what we have to be account held accountable for in terms of our professional development efforts. And we've broken those areas into the factors that have leverage. Uh, those factors include in order the structure of the, of the therapy. So models and techniques do contribute, but as Daryl say, it's a pretty paltry amount. It's about 1%. And yet, if that's where your problems lie as a professional, you have a hard time getting clients started and a hard time ending sessions and you don't provide a compelling theoretical rationale, well then 100% of the negative outcomes are attributable to that, if I'm making sense. So in general, in general, 1% is about what they contribute. Far more if, uh, uh, impactful are, are hope and expectancy. So regardless of the method you use, one factor that has three to four times the amount of leverage that treatment models have is how able are you to create a hope in the client and an expectation of something new or different happening? Again, as a therapist, I have to find out, uh, do, do I have deficits in that particular area or not? The next is in terms of relationship factors. Relationship is the thing you did in graduate school when you read Gerard Egan's book, The, the Skilled Helper. Uh, and we have one class on it, and then we, we don't talk about it ever again. It's, it's really sad, especially when you consider that empathy has an effect size of 0.56, that goal consensus and collaboration, actually simply sitting with somebody and, let, and exploring with them uh, what they're, what's important to them has an effect size of 0.7. Uh, so we don't get tons of training or, or experience. So relationship factors, if you don't know anything else about your effectiveness, where your deficits are, you probably want to aim at improving that. Another one is therapist factors, your ability to reflect and regulate your emotions in, in the session. Therapist factors have a huge impact on outcome, and we could leverage those factors, improving your ability to regulate emotion in the session or reflect on your work post-treatment post and beforehand. Uh, and then uh, uh, last but not least, where, what am I missing here, Daryl, um, out of the five or six? Maybe that's it. Yeah. Can, can I jump in about this, this goal consensus, Pete? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, you, if for, for your listeners, I think it, 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 I hope that they get to read Bruce Wampels and Zach Immel's The Great Psychotherapy Debate, the second edition. Mm. Uh, I think they, they 
provide a really good landscape of the empirical evidence of the state of our field. But one thing about goal consensus, as Scott pointed out, is that it has got such high impact and also probably one of the least uh, least amount of studies being done about this compared to models, which is huge, thousands amount of studies. Then coming back to, to clinical practice and supervision, about 60 to 70% of the time when, we, when we're consulting with somebody, a therapist who, who's trying to improve their, their game, one thing you realize that if they're stuck with a case, one thing I, I found that, you know, just listening to the first 15, maybe 20 minutes of the recording, you want to establish whether have they developed a sense of focus of where the therapy needs to go. And oftentimes, when there is a so-called stuck case, it's often one there is no clear consensus of where that focus is. Uh, there's no clear uh, definition of not so much as like a like a goal specific, but at least a general directionality of where they need to 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 go. And, and I think that's so critical because, as the research has rightly pointed out, has got such high yield. Yeah, yeah, and. And it it and my point here too, Daryl, is that it's not just about finding the goal, as you say. The actual discussion of what's of value to you, helping people sort, identify direction, is in fact therapeutic in and of itself. I just wanted to mention some about client factors. So client factors are another area that we could have leverage on. They are the single largest contributor to outcome. Every clinician knows that. Clients are the wild card. You can't control what walks in the room, but you have to deal with it. That means improving your ability to respond and take advantage of the opportunities that the individual client presents. So among these five or six factors that we've talked about, we can begin to take the therapist's information and look for areas where we might have leverage in improving, as Daryl calls it, their game. I think what you're suggesting is such an interesting idea to break down these factors and say, okay, basically, if we if we only had a certain amount of time to invest, where would be our most logical place to start? And so you're saying, we don't know who's going to walk in the room. Therefore, we need to look at ourselves primarily. We need to look at our ability to um, be primarily responsive to the needs of the client. And, and I want to jump on one point that you said about the goal of therapy, you know, where are we going? What are we trying to get out of this? And it's really interesting in my world coming from utilization review and clinical documentation, when you look at the research about treatment planning, and that, that there is a reason that there are so many books out there that they're in um, different accrediting bodies research and in the documentation from insurance companies where it's this required thing that we do treatment planning. But I see all the time that, that, that that's something that often gets forgotten, particularly in private practice. And it's really interesting because I could probably sit with a therapist and say, um, you know, what are you doing in therapy? And they say, well, we, I'm doing this CBT-based exercise. We've been working on dialectical behavior therapy, dear man, and effective communication skills so that person can use it at work. But then there's this fundamental, um, it sounds like breakdown even at the beginning, at the onset of therapy, which is what are we doing? Where are we going? And we get so kind of focused in being on the road or what kind of car we're going to take on the road that we're not even necessarily sure about the destination. And I think what you're suggesting is so interesting in, in reconceptualizing what we're doing then in the room. So again, if we only had a certain amount of time, 
um, to address basically the factors that are going to be the most impactful, where should we put that time? Where should we put that money, so to speak? Yeah, and and I'll just add that, uh, of course, practicing clinicians have other obligations than just to their clients. They have families, they have lives out, outside of work, et cetera. So you really do have to figure out where to in invest that time. The second thing is deliberate practice is not something that you do once or a weekend. So you're not gonna learn to speak Spanish by going to a weekend workshop. Uh, you might learn some phrases, but you're certainly not going to learn uh, to converse or understand the culture. So deliberate practice is something that's gonna probably take a long time. It's a marathon, not a sprint. But the promise of most workshops is you can accomplish this in a couple of days, learn this method. It's like a shortcut. Uh, bypass the deliberate practice stuff and instead just model, copy what I'm doing and then the outcomes will improve. And we know, we know that, that, that that's not true. We, we know it's not true. So speak a little bit, Scott, about deliberate practice. Um, tell us more you know, about what, what that means and um, how clinicians can use that to improve their outcomes. So in 2007, it was the first time that the words deliberate practice were ever mentioned in any publication associated with psychotherapy. Prior to that time, a Swedish psychologist by the name of Anders Ericsson had been laboring away in other areas that were interested in improved performance, for example, sports. His work was widely accepted and widely applied there. But in 2007, we were trying to explain how it was that certain therapists achieved better outcomes. And we suggested at that time that perhaps the more effective therapist spent more time in this activity, which is finding your deficits and practicing in areas which have leverage under the supervision of a coach who could create exercises that if you repeated them over time, led to successive refinement and improvement of your performance. Daryl then went and he did the, did the research. And perhaps, Daryl, you should do a, a brief summary here because Daryl's study was the first actual study of deliberate practice in, in the history of psychotherapy. I think the, the, the study that we did in 2014 and, and we published that in 2015 was not so much as what was found. I mean, what was found was that deliberate practice, the amount of time a therapist invests in working at the edge has a predictive impact on outcomes. And we're not talking about outcomes to just one client or two clients. It's worth, it's based on an aggregate data of five years worth of client outcome data that had an impact on uh, uh, how effective the therapist was. But I think the, 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 the interesting thing is what was not found. What was not found was uh, the clinical years of experience, uh, their subscribed profession, their theoretical orientation, all these had no predictive value on, on uh, how effective a therapist was. And, and, and that sort of created, a, sort of confirmed, if I dare say, what we thought about, but I, I didn't think we would find it in our field for some strange reason. I always was a bit skeptical of that. And, you know, we, we're hoping to replicate that study even further to see if this pans out in other situations. But that sort of led us to take one more step further and think, and we were thinking about this question that, okay, if 
if that had an impact, how can we help therapists train or practice deliberately, you know, in a, in a, an environment where it's working at stuff that's difficult, things that are challenging, and can we actually help them to uh, move the needle, so to speak, in that area, which led us to working on the second project that we have just uh, come to, to finish up um, the manuscript on, which is the difficult conversations in therapy. In that situation, we intentionally provided therapists with real challenging scenarios, like when a client's angry at you or when a client is uh, has a fix you mental fix me mentality, where you know they try to just defer all responsibility to the therapist, or when a client is avoidant. And because these scenarios don't happen often, but when it happens it really hits us and we, 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 we have no way to refine or get learning feedback on how to improve. So we set that up and we created conditions for, for people to learn based on, on that. And please tell us more. So what are you finding or what do you think you're going to find? Because I, I can see how we could be really good at the relationship until one of those things happens. Yeah. And that's where we start to break down. That's right. So, I mean, we, we did a pilot first. We had just about 10 therapists go through that and we were hopeful. We took it further and we had a randomized clinical trial where we did with people who were receiving what Scott and I would call principle-based feedback, which is a specific way of not so much telling them what to say, but more of having giving them a mental model of how to think about that situation. So we provided the feedback group with this sort of pointed feedback based on their responses. So ref successfully refining what they were doing one trial after another, exposing them to the same video vignette of the client. And then with the control group, we just left them to do what they did best and they self-reflected and tried to improve. What we found in general was that people in the feedback group were able to improve over trials. But what was really uh, edifying for us is to see that even when we switch the client, therapists were able to, tr what we call, transfer the learning to a different situation, which we, we, we didn't kind of expect. We thought it would be, oh, learn all over again, and you got to now learn a repertoire of stock answers of what to say, which, which is why I think that uh, when we saw that people were able to take on a principle level, not so much on a, on a sentence by sentence, semantic, semantic level of explanation, that they were able to scale it and generalize it in a situation. We, we were really hopeful, but this is early days. We, we're only beginning to see this uh, now and we're, we're waiting to publish this out. So hopefully we can take this a little bit further and see for one, whether this can actually impact uh, real world clinical outcomes. That's really interesting. I'm thinking even going back to master's or doctoral programs, you know, I don't think we ever have a conversation about how to have a difficult conversation. We talk about how to make sure to assess for suicidality. Yeah. And we talk about different theories, but what you're suggesting is, um, is really different than even how we've organized our educational programs. And 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 I I think you pick up something really important, Beth. I think in, in the book, we, we talk about this. I think that there are really three types of knowledge. One is clinical knowledge, which is knowing how to think about a case conceptualization to, to have a case formulation when you're faced with somebody with a type of presenting problem. 
that's clinical knowledge. But I think another domain is on process knowledge, which is how you're going to relate with somebody presenting this way. Then the third type of knowledge is what we call conditional knowledge, which is when you see somebody who is depressed, right? But it has a background of grief and loss or bereavement compared to somebody who's, got a, who's depressed as well, but has got a background uh, who came to see you because uh, there was domestic violence involved or somebody with very high perfectionistic style or trait of, of thinking. How different would you work if the conditions change? I, you know, we argue that our field has spent a lot of time on content knowledge and lesser on the process and conditional knowledge, which is the conversational nature mm. of therapy. In fact, you know, the, we our field has kind of flattened those three. It's flattened them completely into just one one domain, so that in the in the future, the way our mm. work would evolve would be to have a spreadsheet, right? Uh, and maybe multiple dimensional spreadsheet, and you would take all these variables and simply end up pointing at one particular box that says with clients who are depressed and have a history of trauma and are female and who were oppressed or who have the sexual trauma. You'd have all of these variables. Well, quickly that becomes completely unwieldy. And that can't be the way we improve our outcomes. So if we step back from all of this conversation, the key has to start with figuring out when and with whom what you do doesn't work and it doesn't work repeatedly. And then finding a coach who can coach you in that particular skill, which is what uh, uh, Daryl led in this particular DCT project, that there's a very specific skill that these folks were, were missing. And we could train them using principles uh, rather than simple verbal statements so that they weren't parroting what we might say, but instead embodying the work in a way that was congruent with their biology, their background, their culture and worldview, mm. et, et cetera. And uh, uh, the, the data really do indicate fairly dramatic and significant improvements in clinicians' ability who go through the project. And I just wanna mention one other sort of interesting, curious finding. As clinicians' ability to respond empathically was improving in the study, many of the clinicians felt less and less certain about their ability. So it's, it's a paradox, really. Being confronted with the sheer complexity of responses engendered a mm -hmm. sense of humility, while at the same time allowing people to express empathy more effectively. I feel like you just crashed into Brene Brown's work about shame and vulnerability. Hmm. Say some more. Um, that basically in our very human reflection of what we're not good at, you know, what could produce shame for a lot of us is actually the area where you're finding that we're more effective, that if we're really mindful about that, and, I, and I'm extrapolating here, and it's probably because I was just reading whatever books yesterday, but just the research about vulnerability and the power of connection, that, that vulnerability is the appropriate um, vulnerability authentic vulnerability is really the foundation of human connection and our sense of worthiness and belonging. And it sounds like you're kind of weaving these two concepts together that when clinicians are um, aware of themselves in the room, aware of the clients, 
and are more authentic, then it's going to almost invariably cause the clinician to feel more vulnerable, but that that's probably a good thing, not a bad thing. Oh, yeah. Which is why I think we need to learn what pilots do is to have simulations for this prior to this ever really happening. You know, when we are vulnerable, we are woundable. And, you know, one of the initial initial trials that we did with the DCT and, and to to all of us, we, we, we actually didn't expect this. We, we had a situation where we presented uh, a client who was not only angry, but was angry at the therapist, right? And one of the participants through the trials, uh, she, she, we could tell that the first round, she was just trying her best to respond by her default mode of what she did. And we sort of, okay, we sort of encouraged her to just do a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. But by the second and third trial, we, we saw that she, she sort of had a frozen look on her face, you know, and, and we were like, what's happening? And it turns out that it triggered a lot for her. It triggered memories of her parents and uh, in her upbringing. And, you know, when, you know, she, she grew up with this rule that never, never get angry with someone else and, and you know, always have tight lip on stuff. And she, she broke down, you know, and. To me, th that was a real learning curve for me that I think we need to understand that in situations like this, we need to help people on how to handle this in, in, a, genuine, in a genuine level that's congruent to them, not so much as telling them what the th right therapy was to say, like, oh, it sounds like you are angry, right? It's probably going to make that person even more angry. So I, I think it's to be able to, for them to, instead of leaning back and becoming very professional about it but more leaning slightly forward and slowing down the process and also trying to reconnect in the face of heat i don't think any of us knew that we were going to go here today but i'm really glad that we did because we're just all sitting here going wow okay um it's a really profound concept then where if we take what you're saying from the research you've done, when therapists are able and willing to be at that edge, to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough to then seek consultation, to seek coaching and supervision and say, hey, I know that this is something I'm not good at. When we bring that kind of power into our work, that that's what actually makes outcomes get better. That, that is what we hope. And and I believe that therapists, I, I mean, that's who I live with. You know, my, my partner's a therapist and I interact with therapists every day. I, I believe that's what they truly want. I, I, I think they find some of their most valuable experiences in the therapy room with that. It's just sad to me that the entire structure in terms of enhancing professional development is in a, in a very different direction. So I, I want to make a prediction. And my prediction is that, uh, first off, this topic, deliberate practice, is going to become a very hot topic. Already, we're seeing signs of that in the number of publications, the articles that Daryl and I are receiving for review, because we sit on, uh, we're reviewers for several, several journals. And so what you're going to see is a lot of books that are sort of like deliberate practice for CBT therapists, deliberate practice for... Uh, emotionally focused therapists, deliberate practice for, I'm going to promise you that that's what's going to happen. And to me, it's a little bit like saying deliberate practice for alchemists. You know, you can practice alchemy until the cows come home. You're not going to turn lead into gold because 
alchemy doesn't have any leverage in that particular area. The things that have leverage really are find out where your edge is, stay in the learning rather than the performance zone. So if I go back to your comments about uh, Benet Brown, shame is when you are other focused and you can't get out of the emphasis on your performance, how you doing. Learning, if you're in the learning zone, then you may feel guilt, which is something I'm racked with every day after meeting with clients. I feel, oh, you know, I should have said this or why didn't I say that? Guilt to me is okay. It motivates me. It pushes me, not overwhelming guilt, but I want to do better by my clients. Shame, it kills effort. And plus, it's all focused on the performance, how you look in, in front of others, including your clients. Again, what a what a powerful idea. And and it's interesting. So if we went in the direction of deliberate practice for CBT therapists, for example, then are we doing just simply a, a reconstruction of CBT and specific interventions? Or is it actually where it needs to be, which is a reevaluation, an invitation for evaluation for that particular therapist that works within the framework of CBT? Yeah, I, I I don't know. I hope it's the latter, but I fear it's going to be the I fear it's going to be the the former. Uh, it, we're embedded in a culture which views uh, learning and improvement in in a particular way, and this is at first glance a little hard to grasp because, as Daryl says, it's not a noun. Deliberate practice isn't a thing you do. Uh, it's it's a verb. It's a way of being. Uh, in terms of of improving and i hope that in the conversation that we've had here that we've begun to outline some of the the stages and we of course do that in in greater detail we advise for example in the book don't just sit down and read this book from cover to cover it's a waste of your time instead read one chapter set it aside and do the work and wait uh, read the next chapter, then do that particular work. Hopefully over an 18 month to two year period, you've gone through the entire, through the all, all of the particular suggestions. But this is nothing that you can accomplish by attending a, week, a weekend workshop, so to speak. Thank you both for telling us some of this research and also kind of doing this deep dive into even the um, the foundation of what therapy is, of, of really what healing is, I think, fundamentally. Um, how can people learn more about you and about um, these, I won't even say methods, of this way of thinking that you're suggesting that could actually be significantly more impactful in making us more effective clinicians? So I, I think that the, the, the couple of channels you could uh, find us. I mean, on, on the social media platforms, we, we both Scott Miller and myself are there. You can go to scottdmiller.com for his website, or you can go to the center of clinical excellence website as well, or you can go to my website, darylchild.com. We will be talking about the book, which is going to be released in May, I think this year, 2020. The book really breaks down really applicable material. So it's not this esoteric conversation. It's here's something that you can do as a clinician to, to help yourself move forward in methods that, that will most likely, you know, when we're looking at the individual factors or therapist factors, here are the things you can influence um, and that hopefully are going to shift your work enough to make you more effective in the room with all of your clients, including the ones that may be more difficult for you as a practitioner. Yes, I, I, I think that is an, a really good summary that we, in the book, we, we sort of lay out the steps, but Daryl and I also want to provide uh, ongoing uh, support and we'll be reaching out to people as they, as they read through the book and trying to provide it in terms of 
uh, webinars and a kind of drip campaign where we send out notes and small freebies to keep people involved in the process of deliberate practice because deliberate practice is not for the weak-hearted and you really do end up feeling kind of bad about yourself at times what's curious about it is that over time your results get better I'm glad you actually address that because I think it is scary. I think for anybody that's listening to this, they've selected this particular podcast episode and they're like, oh, I'm going to learn about this. And then you're suggesting things. It's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm on the chopping block all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so to recap, um, to learn more. So the book is called Better Results and yeah. that'll be coming out in May of 2020. And then to learn about both of you, go to your individual websites or to icce.com. Is that right, Scott? Yes. Um, thank you both for being here and for sharing this time with us. I think the work that your team is doing is, um, is, will be and is already instrumental to helping us actually improve those outcomes and make it so that when clients walk into our rooms, we have better than at best a 50-50 shot um, of actually helping them achieve the um, healing and recovery that they're hoping to. Thanks for this opportunity, Elizabeth, uh, to be with you and Clearly Clinical. We're grateful for your interest and support. Well, thank you both. Thanks for asking all these great questions. My pleasure. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.